1: Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Amy Prosenjak. We're at A to Z. It's uh, January 15th, 2021. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amy.
2: Thank you, glad to be here.
1: Uh, first question, as we always start, why wine?
2: Why wine? I was a, I was a consumer of wine. I enjoyed wine. I was living in Ohio and we were drinkers of wine. We had discovered Pinot Noir. We had traded in the beer keg fridge from college and we had upgraded to the wine fridge storage. So we were growing up learning about wine. We had been to Napa and we had been to Tuscany. So we were kind of doing the traditional discovery Mm -hmm. of wine. And I was really just in a place in my corporate career where I felt like I needed something different. And it was really my husband's idea to say, why don't you get into the wine business? So winejobs.com, <laughs> that's how it started. So I, I really, we started looking around at different opportunities and I didn't understand how my career would convert into wine, but it just became a little bit of a dream to be able to do that and live in some beautiful wine country somewhere. I had never been to Oregon other than um, to visit my aunt and uncle in Vancouver, Washington several years before. That was really my only trip um, to this um, beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And we found the job for A to Z and it was very odd and unique. And it said something like, at A to Z we are long on responsibilities and short on titles. (laughs) Suffice it to say, the slowest zebra in the herd need not apply. Mm I thought, this is kind of interesting, (laughs) these people sound quirky and different. So I sent my resume really on a whim, and the next day Bill Hatcher called me, one of the founders of A to Z, and he said, do you understand cost accounting? And I said, yes I do. I run an inventory department for a billion dollar furniture company here in Ohio, and I definitely understand cost accounting. I have an accounting degree from a small liberal arts college, very similar to Linfield, Ohio Westland. And Bill and I just hit it off on the phone and started talking and he said, I think you should come out for an interview. We're in the process of buying this property called Hill and we need a CFO. Mm -hmm. And I flew out the next week for an interview and Bill and I shook hands at the Portland airport and kind of, we both say the rest is history. We both just kind of knew Mm -hmm. and we've been really fast friends ever since then. And it's been an incredible journey. So as of today, actually today is 14 years. I wow. started on January 15, <laughs> 2007. So that
1: was
3: I didn't know
2: that when we planned this, but it worked <laughs> out. So that's why wine. Um, it just kind of magic happened. We moved west. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's look back up for a second before we get back to that story. Tell me, you mentioned Ohio, Wesley. Tell me about your, kind of your upbringing, education before you got to Oregon.
2: Sure. So my upbringing in Ohio was a great one. Um, my mom is a teacher she was a professor for many years of English and so education was always just really important in our family. Um, I went to Ohio Westland because I figured out I was pretty good at smaller environments and I really felt like I could thrive mm-hmm. at Ohio Westland mm-hmm. I wanted I declared my major as accounting early on because I had taken an accounting class in high school as like a filler so I uh-oh, now here come the dogs. Now we might have to pause. <laughs> Archie, and they're probably wet. Okay, Archie! <laughs> no problem, Cheryl. <laughs> That's called A to Z. There you go. You can keep that on film. That's fine
1: with me. With the blooper reel.
2: Oh my god. I didn't know they were coming today. That's right. awesome. We'll open that in a minute. <laughs> okay, where were we? Ohio Wesleyan. So I chose Ohio Wesleyan because it was a small environment and I knew I could succeed in smaller scale type of environment where I could be really involved. I had declared my major as accounting because I had taken an accounting class in high school as a filler. I had taken all the AP classes, I had enough to graduate, and I needed one more class. And I fell in love with accounting. It just made sense to me. It was like playing Monopoly or something. You had a purchase journal and a sales journal and you were moving all the pieces literally around in this class and I I just understood it. So I declared that and was able to get going on my degree pretty quickly because I knew what I wanted to do. Ended up with an economics management minor and an English minor because, again, I ended up with time at the end of my four years to kind of add on. So I really believe strongly in that liberal arts liberal arts education, Mm -hmm. how you can get various degrees, Mm -hmm. that's something that has always attracted me with Linfield and the Wine Studies program. So we'll get to that in a little bit, I know, but it's kind of that full circle Mm -hmm. of the story that makes so much sense to me. Mm -hmm. I've used so many, I want to go back and get like an organizational behavior degree or a psychology degree, that's a lot of what I do now. Mm And so, just having that understanding that there's so much more to things rather than just accounting, I think has served me well in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. I ended up working for the Limited, whose headquarters are in Columbus, because of a relationship with a professor at Ohio Westland who had just happened to live next door to the VP of HR at the Limited. And so, I started working my senior year at the Limited and going to the headquarters two or three days a week, and I started in accounts payable, and I was paying phone bills, and just getting into what it was like to work at a company, and I was only 20 years old at the time. So I kind of started, I started fast, started young, and just it's just been a lot of, I've, I still use a lot of those skills from the Limited um, today. It was a big corporate company that had lots of money funneling into training and professional development, and it has, I think, has served me well. I was part of the Structure division, which was the men's line that grew out of Express and then has contracted back into Express, but when I was there in the, in the kind of mid-90s, they were on this growth curve, so when I started, there was about 200 stores at Structure and it grew to 500 stores while I was there, so I'm 22 riding around on this private jet like going to these store visits going, this is, this is great. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun, but it was also this great experience to understand what it took to run this big organization um, throughout the country. So it was my early and my first job, uh, corporate job experience.
1: And so you mentioned by the time you came here, you were working at a different spot. Kind so of take me through the, the next step before before coming here.
2: Sure, so I worked at the Limited for about seven years and moved around to different departments and was the manager of financial reporting. So structure being part of the Limited, which was a um, publicly traded company, there was a lot of things that had to happen every month that you would report up to the parent company of the Limited because it was publicly traded. So I learned a lot about that and just structure, auditing, Mm -hmm. compliance, all the things that are necessary um, for that. So I was the manager of financial reporting. I left to go to a company called Value City Furniture because some previous Limited folks were there, so they recruited me over. And that was also an interesting experience because This new company was offering me more money than I was making, more responsibility. So when I gave my notice, that limited saying, but we want you to stay, so they countered. And it was this interesting moment in my professional career of how was I worth less to you yesterday? Now that somebody else wants me, I'm worth more to you. And it was a real learning for me Mm -hmm. as as a professional and especially as a woman that I should be thinking through what I'm worth along the way rather than waiting for it to be handed to me because they were willing to pay for me when somebody else wanted me. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So it was. I I will never forget that conversation with my then boss who I'm still very good friends with um, and how he helped me navigate those feelings and I eventually made the decision to leave and go to this other company and try something different. So moving to Value City was different. It was also a billion dollar retailer, so big in scope, but it was family owned. So it wasn't publicly traded and when I got there, They hadn't done things like reconcile their accounts for years, because it didn't really matter. I mean, they were doing certain things within the parent company, but not within this furniture division. So it was a time for me to take everything I had learned and reinvent this big company. And so I had various positions um, through the company. I was the assistant controller, I was the director of inventory. And so I just was really involved in how the whole company operated. We were vertically integrated. We were buying and producing things in Asia and also in um, the Carolinas. And then we had distribution centers in Ohio and started expanding and opening distribution centers in other areas of the country. We had about 500, excuse me, we had about 200, that was the structure number, we had about 200 retail stores um, that where we were selling the furniture. So it was this whole you were getting to see the whole cycle of this company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a tremendous amount. I became really somewhat of a logistics and distribution expert within that company because furniture is big, and if you order too many sofas, they take up a lot of space, and if you don't sell them all at the rate you thought you were going to, you now have a space problem. Mm-hmm. And we were just, we were bringing things from Asia and then distributing them to all of the stores um, east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So. That was a big challenge and I worked a lot. It was a billion dollar furniture company that didn't have a purchase order system. So we were just kind of scanning faxes over to Asia saying I'll take 10. So there was a lot of development that happened, um, became very involved in IT and database um, development there. So a lot of great experience. So I was there happy doing my thing in this life and corporate life and you know doing what you do in the meantime too of like buying a house and having a car and all you know having a yard and then you end up with all these things that are happening Mm -hmm. and my husband and I had decided not to have children so we were definitely up for more adventures in our 30s and we were traveling and starting to discover the world at the same time discover wine Mm -hmm. and so when this opportunity came up it was an interesting one at A to Z because it, not only did we have to move across country and change that whole side of our you know, life and where we lived, we were also downsizing pretty significantly because the opportunity here at the time was pretty different. A to Z was producing about 80,000 cases at the time and so that structure and that financial structure of what they could pay me was very different from what I was earning currently but it just seemed like the right thing to do. I was 33, and yes, it was a big risk, but it was a way to kind of put a stop to what was happening and leave that behind and start something new. And so when we moved here, we bought a small little condo that we, end up, we still live in because it just has made our life pretty mobile and different, and we're hardly ever home until now. Um, during COVID, (laughs) so we've had to rearrange a little bit in there. But it has served us well to have done that in our 30s and kind of stopped the typical corporate ascension of the ladder, Mm -hmm. both professionally and personally. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've gained everything back in these past 14 years that I was looking for out of life. There's just more meaning to what I'm doing at this company than there was in Mm -hmm. my past. Mm
1: So tell me about, you mentioned kind of your initial interview, initial interaction with Bill. Tell me about your initial impressions of A to Z and what, what the company looked like at the time and what you thought of Oregon and the wine industry as you started to figure <laughs> that out.
2: So as I said, we hadn't spent much time in Oregon other than the aer- seeing the airport <laughs> once. Sure. So when I first got here, I had kind of glimpses or imaginations of exploring. But what happened is when I came, A to Z was in the process of buying Rexil from the original owners, Paul Hart and Jan Jacobson. They had closed on the transaction um, at the very that last day of 2006. I came January 15th of 2007. And It was just a whirlwind. It was head down, transaction had happened, but there was still a lot of work that needed to happen. So for about four months, um, Bill and I were in the same office over in our legacy building, where we have our tasting room now, and we were sharing space. We had card tables, we had computers. There was a working fireplace that was very cozy. There was also a bed in there left over from when that was the bridal suite for Rexhill, and there was a cat. That they had found as a stray that they felt bad for that they thought they should adopt but people were allergic to the cats so they didn't take the cat home the cat was in the office so that's how i started and bill and i had our computers we were you know faced each other with the screen so we couldn't see each other but we're typing away every day and i would discover some would come up with a question or discover something i'd say hey bill how does this work and he would tell me and then we would keep going And then you know we'd eat lunch together most every day, and um, so we'd go to the Dundee Bistro a lot. We went to the place up in Sherwood, Hunter's Grill. We went there a lot. We liked that burger, so we had a lot of lunches at Hunter's Grill. Um, And we really were just we were closing the transaction. I got to know Paul Hart um, really well during that time because we were talking every couple of days. Um, There was a lot of things that still had to be done. And so I just learned about the history of Rex Hill because I had all of Rex Hill's records and financial books. And I had all of A to Z's records that had started in 2002. And I, you know, I basically was combining the financial structure of these companies. And in the meantime, the 2007 growing season was getting going. And I started to find out things like, we didn't have a purchase order system. We were buying grapes from all these great growers across the state of Oregon on handshakes which is how Oregon, that's why people love Oregon, but we were also buying millions of dollars, and I thought, maybe we should have some (laughs) contracts. We were buying glass from different places with no contracts, and then Bill was doing a lot of work to try to reconcile all of this stuff, and if anybody knows Bill Hatcher, we call him Rain Man because he's so smart with numbers. He really had it all in his head. It was was small enough that he could do all the calculations in his head, and he knew if someone told him that this is how much glass per case cost, he could figure out what the cost per case was gonna be on the wine, and he was like within cents, which drives me crazy. I have to do a big spreadsheet and come up with the answer, says it's this i'm like how would we get the same answer so he kind of knew what it was but we could see the horizon that we were getting going uh, the plan was to get bigger we were buying rixill to have a home and i could see we needed more structure Mm -hmm. so back to my billion dollar experience at these big corporate companies that's all i knew so that's what i put into place for a to z so we were operating it was about eight million dollars of revenue that first year and i just started putting in systems and I was basically a team of one doing all of this stuff to put it together, but I had Bill's guidance and I just set it all up like I would a billion dollar company. And I think it has really served us well. We haven't needed all of that, of course. We're not a billion dollar company yet. But it has served us well because as we grew, we could just put things into place and we had a home for it. And as we started to hire team members, they had structure Mm -hmm. to put around it. Mm And we didn't necessarily need people in the administrative side of things that had wine experience what we needed were folks that had finance accounting cost accounting experience and then they could put their talents to use to put their talents to work with all of these different systems so that's what i kind of spent the first four or five months doing And then my husband eventually sold our house in Ohio and moved here in May. And then I thought, I better take a few days off and we should go visit a few other wineries and see what else is happening out in Oregon. And so that's when, the summer is when we really started to look around and drive to Crater Lake and go to all these great iconic wineries. So our first dinner together here in Oregon was at Nick's. So, you know. of Of course. Of course.
1: What did you? Let's start with the wine industry. What, what did you think of Oregon's wine industry as you started to go out? What was what what were the what was attractive to you about it, and what did you think needed to be kind of boosted mm-hmm. up at that point?
2: Well, really, that first year, I, because I was so focused on the financial side of things, I um, we worked with urban CPAs at the time, and um, Debbie was really. Helpful with me to introducing me around to other wineries and other controllers and other CFOs within the business. I guess my initial reaction was that there weren't a lot of other business people in the business. So there was about 300 or so wineries at the time in 2007. Most on the small side, some kind of in that mid size, and then we were growing to be you know on the larger size. Hmm. So. It kept striking me that folks either had grown up in the business coming in as like a bookkeeper or a, or a staff accountant and then they learned things and then they were you know, running that financial piece of business. Not so many were as involved in, like I was with the families. So A to Z's owned by two at the time was two families. Now it's Bill Hatcher, Deb Hatcher, and Sam Tanhill and Cheryl Francis. And so because there was four of them and it was all family owned and family run. You know, It was just a different kind of situation where I was involved in all of that, and that wasn't always true with the folks I met. Where I started to get more exposure, so we bank with Bank of the West, and they're based out of Napa, Mm -hmm. and they have about 500 winery clients, including now several in Oregon, but at the time, we were their only Oregon client. And Adam Beek there at Bank of the West is the one that started kind of hooking me up um, in conversation with different folks out of the California industry to learn that were different size than here in Oregon so I could learn different things. I took a class at UC Davis that summer that was based on finances and it was very California-centric, as you would imagine. I kept, what about, or- well, we only get two and a half tons. Of- what, you know, I kept at, and they finally, at one of the breaks, the guy comes up to me and he says, are you from Oregon? Yes, I'm from Oregon, could you tell? So I was trying to figure out and learn how to build the costing model that Bill had had in his head I realized we had to be able to replicate that within spreadsheets or databases. And so I was trying to collect all this information. So I was definitely in a collecting phase and I wasn't getting a lot of information from folks in the Oregon wine business of business. I started learning lots about wine. I took the WSET classes, uh, level one and level two. I started going to different tastings. We had a colleague here um, that started running um, a tasting group at night, so I started getting into the wine side of the culture with my colleagues here at A to Z. But on the business side, I was, their, Bill was my main mm-hmm. resource mm-hmm. for that because he had started main Druin and just knew all of these different things that I was needing to learn. So that's really how my first year progressed. I tried to start a little bit of that. Financial culture, there's all these wine tasting groups. There should be a business side of that too. So, we started lots of different iterations of that over the years. We've hosted a lot of those groups over time. And as the industry has expanded, more folks with business backgrounds are definitely getting involved, which is good. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's talk about A to Z then at that time. Obviously you mentioned you, you jumped right in as everything was happening. So A to Z had been around a little while, but it was closing on the property and had designs on growing. So tell me what the, what the plan as it was described to you at the time was. What were, what were the goals for A to Z as you were coming on board?
2: Right. The goal for A to Z has always been to create the highest quality wine for, the, for a sustainable price. And that hasn't changed. And our size may have changed, but our goal, our brand proposition has stayed the same and our intention has always stayed the same to, we've changed the words over the years, but things like we've, we wanna be a company with a, as a force for good. We want to combine commerce with conscience. I mean, those types of values-based intention has been true since 2002 when they started and it was just the four of them around Deb's Kitchen Table. And as we were, we were really growing up in that 2007, 2008, Side of things because we were acquiring Rex Hill. The joke was before that our only asset was a color printer, which was very close to true. <laughs> we actually had purchased one of the 40,000 gallon tanks that we still have and we had placed it at Rex Hill because A to Z was bottling, one of the places they were bottling was Rex Hill. So we were combining operations into Rex Hill because we had purchased the property. And we were starting to create functionality within each of the managers and leadership team throughout the company. So we were establishing the difference between the four founders sitting around a table where everybody was involved in every decision, whether it was marketing or sourcing, where you were going to sell. And we were creating a structure where now all of a sudden we had employees. Um, We had 50 employees when we first purchased Rex Hill. We now have 74 employees. And figuring out whose job was what and defining those roles, getting comfortable with that you weren't involved in every decision anymore. Um, it was a process that we were going through as a leadership team mm-hmm. as, as the company was growing up. So, lots of stories out there, right, about how founders can't convert to being managers of a business. And I think we found this sweet spot where I was a good manager. The four founders are really entrepreneurial and creative and looking at the broader scope and the team of the five of us can make that happen together. Mm-hmm. And. You know, the A to Z story is about those four founders, and that's fine with me, because that's who it should be about. I'm happy to be the structural piece behind making all of this work. And I think that's what has allowed us to grow at the right pace that's worked for us.
1: You mentioned the four founders, and that obviously you're coming into a place where they have, like you say, have had a hand in everything for for the years of Mm -hmm. of the creation, since it was created. Tell me about the, that kind of personality. You, you had a background in corporate mm-hmm. with, with uh, public, public, publicly owned, you had a background in corporate where it was family owned. Tell me about coming into the personalities and, and how you kind of found your spot among four people who had been involved
2: in everything like that. I found my spot through a lot of active listening. So back to maybe wanting a psychology degree an organizational <laughs> behavior degree to add in my liberal arts background. You you just have to listen, you have to be a good listener, and then you have to synthesize, and then you have to come back with a solution that you think will work, Um, a lot of collaboration. It was really establishing um, that I had a point of view, but I was willing to take in what they, of course, wanted and intended. And that's still true today, 14 years later, so I spend a lot of my time each week either with one of the founders or on the phone with one of the founders and you know i'm at this i've progressed through the company i became the coo i was president i've been ceo for 2 years so we have created this succession plan where from a management point of view i am running the company the four founders are all still involved in their different ways and they are owners of the business so we have different kinds of conversations when we're talking about ownership and what that means and what they should know and how they should be informed and what values need to come from that to create the foundation of the culture and then there's different things I need to talk to them about when we're in a management capacity talking about the day-to-day mm-hmm. running of the business. Mm-hmm. So that has taken time to work out, but I think because we're all friends too, that it has worked pretty well. And I think we all realize we're in this, we should, we're grateful. We're, we're in this amazing industry where we have the option and the privilege to make wine, which is a luxury item, but yet we're at the, we're, we're farmers and we're at the, we have mother nature to contend with, so we don't get to make all the decisions. We're not in control, mm-hmm. but we're able to you know, not always take it so seriously and have a little bit of fun. There's been challenging times where we've had to make serious decisions, but I think we've found that, that good balance. Mm-hmm. At least we're trying to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So obviously A to Z had, at that point, an idea that was fairly unique in Oregon, to grow to the size that it had now has. There are not many Oregon mm-hmm. wineries that, that are that size or that even are even large. Tell me about that, the conscious decision of that and, and what that meant for you in terms of scaling up operations in a state where that's not common.
2: We've had a lot of challenges scaling up. For sure, because we're not the typical size of Oregon. The, the, so backing up for a second, the mission of A to Z, like I said, and the proposition has always been, been to create quality wine. So that's always the, that's always the first thing that's in our, any of our decisions, is will we be able to make quality wine in that way? So as we were scaling up, we were trying to um, respond to what the market was asking for. And our distribution, and the, one of the early decisions of A to Z founders was that Oregon shouldn't be our primary market. And so we, we started that early on that we needed to have distribution in other places, and that we were going to be at a different price point than most typical Oregon wineries at the time. So $20 or under mm-hmm. for, the, for the A to Z wines. So, with that in mind, that's what had happened by the time I got here in 2007, and we were buying Rex Hill. We we essentially had distribution in all 50 states and a few export countries. So that had developed um, in that time frame. And what we were trying to do was get smarter, more professional, more sophisticated with those distribution networks around the country. So we were fortunate to. Um, have some of that existing and then we, it was really building that foundation as we went. Mm-hmm. I kind of forget what your question was now. I'm like going off talking about <laughs> <laughs> remembering all the distribu- distributor meetings from 2007.
1: Just sort of the, the challenges of scaling challenges up. of scale b- right because obviously you mentioned we, as you showed us the campus before we sat down for the interview you, you've talked about how much growth has happened mm-hmm. here and how, but as a, that's, that's, those are challenging growth. Absolutely.
2: We were dealing with a lot of vendors out of California, right? Whether it was tank vendors, whether it was packaging vendors, whether it was the rep didn't live in Oregon, all those things were true. You know, you'd get a proposal and Newberg was spelled wrong. I mean, no one knew where we were half of the time. And so trying to work to build partnerships with folks and vendors to try to make it easier to do business here. And that has definitely come along, I mean, we have what, over 900 wineries now here in the state, and so those things are developing over time, it's just we were ahead of when we needed some of those services that didn't exist here yet. So working really hard on the relationship, and then companies were putting, because of our size, companies were starting to put, whether it was the rep for Tricor Braun, We used to deal with someone out of California who we enjoyed a lot, but he couldn't be here when something was going wrong on the bottling line. As we started to grow and we were building that partnership, and our volume allowed some of these companies to put reps that lived here in Oregon. So We still work with Trichobron today, but we have a rep that lives over in Sherwood, and she's here all the time, not only bringing donuts, but helping us when there's an issue or quality control. Or something that we need to talk about, or we're looking at new samples for some new wine that we're looking at, you know, it's all in person, face to face. Mm -hmm. And so that has developed over time. We are partners with Signature Bottling Services, they have been a great partner to us this whole time. We have a truck, one of their trucks down there that has the A to Z logo on it. Um, So we have long-standing, long-term partnerships. We've worked with Northwest Distribution and Storage out of Salem since the beginning. They've grown with us, so they were operating out of one warehouse, Uh, now they have a few more buildings, and a lot of that is filled with A to Z, and lots of other wines as well, which is great. Um, So I think we have worked hard on the relationship side of things with long-term partners to try to get that access that we needed and and have the kind of service that that we should and other wineries should because of the size of our industry.
1: Mm-hmm. So as as one of the biggest wineries in the state obviously you 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 have a very different perspective on the industry and a very different perspective on sort of the market. I'm curious about trying to make quality Pinot Noir at that kind of price, at that kind of scale in a state that has always been known for making tiny amounts of wine at much higher prices. Mm -hmm. How has it worked in terms of relationships within the industry? Have you ever felt like you were like the big bad kid on the block who was driving everybody's prices down or how have people responded to your, your business model and how have you kind of built those relationships?
2: I think it's been mixed, right, over time. It depends on the topic and the context. We also have the great fortune of having the Rex Hill brand. So, when we bought that from Paul and Jan, we have hopefully reinvigorated that brand and that's our luxury brand. So, different price points, different sourcing, different methods here in the cellar. So, we do both and I think that allows us to participate in industry events like OPC or IPNC where, you know, the consumer or the audience or the trade person that's coming to those events they can probably find A to Z in their local market, but they might not be able to find Rex Hill or one of our single vineyards. So we do have both. Mm-hmm. Um, when you come to the tasting room here, it's about Rex Hill. It's that wine club is for Rex Hill. I mean, so we we do keep the brands separate. Um, as a consumer, you may know that we make both, but we don't. That's not that has not been part of our brand strategy to advertise that our company is A to Z. All the employees are A to Z employees. I mean, that's. That's how our structure is, but we have different brands that have different personalities and different focus. So, as how that relates into the industry, sure, there's been times where um, I think that we've maybe been maybe we've been seen as being too big. But our really our motto is bigger can be better. What are the kinds of things that we can do because we have a larger scope and size? We've always been. Um, a proponent of that inclusivity. When we became a B Corp in 2014, we were the only B Corp winery, which was great, very cool, but our um, message was come join us. Here's how you can do it. I hosted a session with Chris Sarah with Live to understand that if you're Live certified, you can become B Corp certified pretty easily because you're already tracking all the things that matter to B Corp on the environment side. So trying to promote and again establish that we've worked with Linfield many, many times, hosting students, trying to have, it's not only a great um, opportunity for Linfield students to come and see a winery and hear from colleagues that work within A to Z. It's a great experience for my marketing colleague to practice presenting to mm-hmm. a group of Linfield students. So we try to use it to our, advan- our, we try to use our size to our advantage and share and you know, have people come join us rather than say, you know, we just want a better price because we're big. <laughs> I mean, supply and demand is going to work that way with volume, but we want to share um, in what we learn as well. I mean, on the winemaking side, our, our winemaking group is involved in all sorts of things throughout the industry, whether it's the Chardonnay Technical uh, CTT group or whether it's being on panels or working at different, you know, at the symposium, so forth.
1: You mentioned B Corp, and obviously that's a huge accomplishment. Um, Tell me about the the decision to to go for B Corp status and then the kind of process of getting there.
2: So, becoming a B Corp was rigorous, but when we started hearing about B Corp and learning about it, uh, Sam Tannehill is the one that brought it to my attention, he'd been doing a lot of reading and hearing about other consumer goods, products, having that B Corp um, certification. And When I looked into it, I thought, you know, this is all of the things we're already doing as a company. There wasn't a lot that we weren't doing that was on that list, so B Corp is a positive point certification, so there's 200 possible points, and you have to have 80 points in order to be certified, so it's not a, if you do this, you get minus, it's just, what are all the things you are doing? So when I looked at that, I thought, we could do this. So I just kind of set aside some Fridays on my calendar, and I started filling it out. Because what you have to do is prove that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. So if it asks you, what are your employee benefits? Do you have paid time off? You you say yes, and then they say, go ahead and upload your employee handbook that shows Mm -hmm. that that's true. So there's a lot of tracking and documentation and so forth that goes with it. So it took a couple of weeks, but it was a really good exercise for me to go through because I had been here for about seven years at the time, and it was a great way to kind of review where we'd come, what we'd done, what we did have in place, and what we were still missing. Mm and now you recertify every three years i believe it was two for a while now it's every three years and now what we do is multiple people throughout the the business are part of that recertification so you have the director of hr do her part you have the winemaking operations manager do her part the viticulturalist puts you know he submits his information so now it's a group effort to get that certification and it reminds us what we still need to track You know, one of their taglines is measure what matters, and so if you're not measuring it, if you're not tracking it, it's harder to improve, whether it's reducing water consumption or, you know, making sure you have transparency on your financials. Mm -hmm. All those, it's a great reminder of the way we want and try to do business. So it's kind of like that good housekeeping seal of approval on your whole business. So to the the linear accounting folks, it actually makes a lot of sense that it looks at your whole business. Mm -hmm. If we're not a profitable business, then how can we keep doing good in the community or doing well by our employees, by offering additional benefits? Mm -hmm. It's a way to make sure that you're looking at that three-legged stool of your business and caring about all all stakeholders, not just the bottom line. Mm
1: And you mentioned that you were the first and had, and others have joined you. Tell me about, is uh, is it something that you felt has brought you positive uh, interactions with, with consumers? Is it something that people care about that you found that, that people are responding to?
2: We do see people caring about it, whether it's consumers directly or whether it's trade partners like a, like a retailer, mm-hmm. like New Seasons, or whether it's a distributor that you're working with. So it is a unique selling point for us compared to all the other tens of thousands of wines that are available to folks. So if you're looking for it, we have it. The Little B Corp, is on every one of our bottles. If that's not something that you're interested in, that's fine, it doesn't have to be the only thing we talk about, but I think it's a good door opener. Mm-hmm. And I mean, let's face it, the wine business is a marketing business. It's very fun to make and it's you know interesting and, and it's a whole process to make, selling it, marketing it, That's a different business, and that's the business that I think people miss out on or misunderstand what it takes to sell so much wine, Mm -hmm. and B Corp is another one of those ways. At the same time, like I said, it's creating this environment inside the company that makes sure we stay on task Mm -hmm. to our values. Mm -hmm. So I think it does both.
1: So let's talk about selling wine. As long as we're talking about selling wine, obviously we've heard many times in interviews that that is most people's least favorite part or the most difficult part. So tell me about selling wine, especially at this scale and, and the, the, the efforts you have had to take as you've grown.
2: Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of effort to sell all this wine out there in, in the world. Um, so we've done it a couple of different ways. So when I first came to A to Z, we had a contract sales group. Northwest Core Collection that was selling our wine along with other brands through the country and that worked really well for us to about that size of 100,000 cases. And then it was time to create our own sales force that were strictly only selling A to Z and Rex Hill wines and that had a little bit Um, different experience with larger distributors. So as we were getting larger, the kinds of places we needed to be selling our wine Mm -hmm. was changing Mm -hmm. and we needed a sales group that could understand that and manage that. And so we hired um, our national sales president, Ron Mertz, at the end of 2010. And then we put a team in place in 2011, and we've grown to that. We have 13 sales folks now that live across the country, um, including Ron, who's still with us, and the original um, four group of four that that we hired at the time. And so it's been interesting and rewarding to watch that group grow and see how how that job function of sales has developed as we've grown. Really their customer is the distributor. So they're working with their distributor partner on daily basis to understand how our wine is being sold within their state Mm -hmm. that they control. And we do have meetings with um, national retailers and so forth where we're having that direct connection, but you pretty much always have your distributor partner with you in those kinds of presentations and meetings. we still get out and work the market, of course, and talk to direct accounts. Most of the wine, though, is sold through the distributors' sales groups that are covering, covering those states. So, we still do wine dinners, and we still show up at accounts, and we pour, and we do those kind of things as well, but we also have this group of professional sales folks that are, are managing our distributor relationships.
1: From your perspective, what have you seen change in terms of Oregon wine's sort of notoriety? Has it gotten easier to sell Oregon wine than to these channels?
2: I think Oregon continues to have a very positive reputation in the world. A to Z started as one of those entree wines. So if you tried A to Z for $20, you might be willing to try a different Oregon wine for $40 next time. And I think that's still true. And that's great with us. We love being the first discovery for someone from Oregon. Um, But we also like being people's go-to for Oregon wine. So we can be both. And I think it's, um, I think Oregon has continued to have a very positive reputation in the market. There are way more choices now, which makes it fun. Um, I think that has also created a A to Z's primarily sold in retail at this point. About 90% of what we sell is through retail. And some of that's because of the brand, and some of that's because there's way more choices that can be on premise. So I think it's worked as a, A to Z's always traded on the story of what Oregon wine country and that pioneering spirit and living and working on your estate. We don't happen to do that, but we love that image of how Oregon Mm -hmm. operates. So I I think it can be both. It's one of those both and kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. But I think Oregon is well known now. Um, There are still times when you get in a market and folks don't know. Deb Hatcher has a slide in her presentation and she asks folks, if you look at Oregon on the map, where is it on the East Coast? And people guess things like North Carolina. I mean, we, I guess as Americans, we don't all know geography, but it's Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's pretty high up there, and so people aren't aware of where Oregon is or that it's a wine growing region all the time, so there's always education to be had. And there's so many great wines in the world that you have to keep reminding folks about your wines. That's just a constant job. So.
1: So in addition to the B Corp and and sort of just being here to help scale up the the, the operations, what are some of the things you've accomplished here that you're particularly proud of?
2: Well, a lot of things are are particularly fun to think about in this time. Um, Association with Linfield has been a good long one for me. Um, Tom Helley first started talking to me because we were both wine lovers and I think we met at Brookhouse one time. We were tasting wine and he, this was when the Wine Studies Program was kind of in its infancy. They were getting ready to hire Ellen Britton as the first director of the wine um, department and Jeff Peterson had started teaching some of the classes um, at Linfield and there was a certificate available. And so one of the first things I did was have a few A to Z folks take some of those classes to get that certificate. And then I called Tom and I said, I don't know if these classes are exactly up to par yet. Like maybe they're not enough of what we would want them to be if you're if you have this vision of what could be at Linfield with Wine Studies. They didn't seem to have enough meat.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, some of the marketing and business classes is what I'm focused on uh, thinking about. And so we kind of I became part of the journey of like trying to develop and understand that curriculum. And the way I tried to do that was participate. I would guest lecture or guest speak in some of the classes. We would have Linfield students come here. You had started having that group come around um, to meet with different wineries and talk about things like compliance rather than just fermentation. I mean, Linfield really was trying to see the broad scope of what the wine Mm -hmm. business was, not just how to make wine, Mm -hmm. which is what attracted me to it. Being a non winemaker, people always ask me, How did you get your wine? How are you a winemaker? I have to remind them, I'm not the winemaker. I just know how to hire a great winemaker and then. Make it all work. So I was interested in that with Linfield because it wasn't just only about the wine making. And so being a part of that council and committee working um, to help develop and host some of the summer programs that Jeff and Ellen put on. Um, and just exciting to see it transpire into a minor and now a major and possibly a graduate degree at some point. and you know having Greg Jones join the group has just given a lot of gravitas. Um, and now with the Evanstad Center, I mean, what a generous, what a generous gift! Meant multiple gifts from the Evanstad family, and, and with Ryan Harris being involved, it's been fun to see it transform into a real, real live department with all these exciting new potentials. And just hearing Dr. Madden the other day talking about what she can see happening um, with the de- with the department and degrees possible. It's exciting. So, I have loved being a part of Linfield. Um, Tom and the group had asked me to be on the board of trustees a couple of years ago, so I've done that since 2016. And that's been interesting to be a part of that higher ed world and be involved in that. I don't have my own kids, and so when I get around students, I'm constantly impressed with how um, mature they are and how. Um, they just have all this experience that they want to offer, and that's been energizing to me to be about, around young folks um, in the Linfield community. So every time I go, I feel like I'm going back to Ohio Westland. <laughs> Feels really similar. So, so I've really enjoyed being a part of Linfield. I'm also on the board at Literary Arts here in Oregon, and that is just one of my personal passions is that I'm a voracious reader, so I love being a part of something that has to do with writers and authors coming to visit and writers here in Oregon, readers, creating opportunities for youth here in Oregon to experience great writing and great literature. And I just, that's something that's personally important to me and has such a cultural, um, I think effect here in Oregon. So I've dragged lots of A to Zers down to the Arlene Schnitzer concert hall to come with me to come enjoy some sort of author or presenter. A to has been very generous to support that program as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We're also pretty involved with Virginia Garcia, the foundation, and supporting their efforts. Um, we know that we the wine industry really counts on our vineyard teams and viticulture teams that are out there. And so even though A to Z provides for our employees, that that may may not mean that everybody has access to culturally appropriate healthcare, which I think is pretty important in our um, community. And so I think VG does great work. They run just like a to Z runs as a business and we happen to be a winery. I feel the same way about VG. They run that as a big, real business and they happen to be providing culturally appropriate health care with 30 languages at their clinics and you know all these amazing things that they do with the mobile dental unit. And so we host a fundraiser here at Rex Hill every summer trying to help promote and support their work, which I think is pretty important. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm curious about obviously the wine industry is, is such a kind of a unique industry you're running it as a business but it has such a unique kind of unique cachet I'm curious about how it compares and contrasts to some of the work you do outside how is your how does your professional life and your and, the, and your service life how do they how are they similar and how are they different
2: I think when you're in the wine business it's all mixed up and mushed together I mean, being in the wine business is, you're in the entertainment business, you're in the marketing business, you're in the sales business of wine, and so pretty much every dinner you go to, even if it's a personal dinner, you're either bringing wine or talking about wine at the end of the night. Um, You go out with friends and they hand you the wine list, they're like, here, you pick. I'm like, oh, I didn't know I had to learn how to be a sommelier as well, okay, let me get my WSCT hat on and see if I remember about Italian wine. It just becomes part of your business. Um, I mean, it becomes part of your, (laughs) can't even say it right, it becomes part of your life that that's your business, and it's, to me, it's interesting, fun, and different things to talk about. I mean, you do get invited to places because of the wine, and I think that's why the community involvement has worked so well. I mean, it's interesting to me personally to be on the Literary Arts Board, but we've also been a supporter and lots of readers like wine, and it has worked you know, as a good partnership, and so we've we've created a lot of new A to Z customers because of the affiliation with Literary Arts. Mm-hmm. So it works well together, I think that's why wine is such a great um, support in the community, whether it's at a fundraiser or a gala specifically about wine, like Classic Wines Auction, or if it's something like the Smart Readers Program. They still need wine for their gala as well, and then they know that, say, A to Z supports smart. So I think it goes hand in hand. It, it doesn't feel separate to me ever, and sometimes that maybe is, you know, you get to the end of a long week and you're just, oh my goodness, I don't want, I don't want to deal with that anymore. But you kind of do, and by the next day, it's just all, you're kind of back in it. So mm-hmm. it's all very connected to me, the community, um, the industry, and the business all feel like it's, it all works together really well. Nobody used to call the limited and ask for donations of jeans. That's just that didn't happen. I mean, that company did a lot of support in the community, but you weren't trading your product mm-hmm. for that marketing. Um, wine is so different. We probably get too many requests. You know, it's like I don't. Who is this? I don't know your school. No, I'm not supporting your kids' auction. We don't know you. But. There's such a difference between mm-hmm. what you can do with wine, because it's an actual physical thing that goes with entertaining and eating and you know the dining experience. So that's unique, and wineries, I think, use that to their advantage really well
3: mm-hmm.
2: and are very generous. I mean, most every winery I've ever talked to, I mean, the amount of wine that is donated is, it's a pretty big percentage compared to, say, denim. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just different
1: you didn't bring like a pair of jeans to your host at every party yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean thing.
2: it's just I don't know it just it tra- wine translates mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. And so it's a connector. And that's wine's about memory. You you have some of the fabulous dinner with your best friends and you have food and wine and you may not even remember which wine you drank. But if you do, what you remember is the feeling and the conversation and how you felt. I mean, that's how people fall in love when they come to the taste room. They're like, I love this wine. And then you get home and it, maybe it tastes a little different, but because the experience is different. And so to me, wine and dining and enjoying with your friends and family is, is really about memory. And um, I think that's, that's what's so unique and special about wine.
1: So you brought up Linfield earlier and obviously uh, the connection, one of our main connections here. So you started off with a kind of wine advisory before you got into the board, so let's talk about that first. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned kind of sampling the early, the early things Linfield was doing and, and offering suggestion as the, as the minor became reality and then the major, what, what did you think of the process and, and what was the input from you and the wine community on what a Linfield wine studies major should look like? Mm-hmm.
2: A lot of different people have been involved in this committee, which has been fun. I've gotten to know other industry members like David Beck through this experience, which I enjoy. And I think Linfield's been so open to suggestions and vice versa, the wine industry has been so willing to teach. So all the people on these committees over the years have all donated their time, whether it's been through guest lecturing or just working with professors. So one of the early accounting professors um David Corb, he he and I traded back and forth spreadsheets like for two years. He would send me something, he was working on a costing model with his students, and he would send me, does this make sense? And I'd write back, nope. <laughs> and then we'd, you know, we'd get it to where it made sense. So just being willing to keep working to figure out how the classes can be, you can take the marketing lesson and wrap it around wine. You can take Verlena Crosby has been working on the whole basically um, the, the supply and logistics chain, the whole distribution model, and she keeps wrapping it around stories about wine. And she tests it with people within the wine industry. So she reads about it, she goes and does all her own research, and then she also talks to business people or general managers at different at wineries and test it. And she has, and she comes and she asks questions. So I think Linfield's been so open to that, which has been great, which is what I think made the content so good and worthy of becoming a minor and a major. Mm -hmm. And then you get Greg Jones in there and he tweaks it all up even more. So I I think it's it's a good um, lesson. What was interesting as being um, on the business side is how slow academia can be compared to what happens in a corporate situation. So, that was a good un, you know and the, like where is the tension there and how can we be a little bit faster when we should be and how where should we slow down when we should be? I think that's been an interesting. There's been some dynamic conversations in some of those committee meetings of really about pace. Mm-hmm. And so, having the process of getting things approved, there's a reason that all exists in higher ed and I understand more about that now from being on the board but there's also a reason to keep taking advantage of opportunities. So how do you how do you find that balance?
1: So when it comes to the board itself, what, when you were offered the chance to join, did, what, what, what were your considerations? What made you ultimately decide to do it?
2: Really, at the time, it was because of the Wine Studies connection. So, um, you know, Tom Helley and I had had a few different discussions about why that was important to have a wine business representative on the board as we were launching the minor at the time. And there's several of us on the board in that capacity. But I learned quickly, too, that I had other things to offer. Um, Being the finance person, he was going to put me on the finance committee. And we had a little exchange, and I said, well, can I not be on the finance committee for once? I said, I promise I will review the finances and I will take it seriously. And I respect Marianne Rodriguez, she's amazing but can I do something different? I, I really want to expand what, so he said yes, and so I'm on the Academic Affairs Committee, and that's been a whole other place where I've been able to learn and understand the operations of what happens at Linfield and what it takes to create such amazing educational experience for the students. So I'm glad that he gave me the chance to do something different than what I typically do. <laughs> I'm always the treasurer, like let me do something else. So that's been fun to expand You know how I've gotten involved and all the different people that I've gotten to know on that board, some are alum and some are not, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's just a really unique group of people. Mm-hmm.
1: And tell me about the the journey so far on the board. Obviously, um, you've been since 2016, so you've been around a little bit now. Tell me a little bit about what you've seen as part of the board and and kind of what you see for the future for your own involvement and and for the school. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think I've seen the biggest transformation come with with Dr. Davis joining. Um, I've had the pleasure of being on that search committee um, and that change and different kind of energy um, I think is serving Linfield well. When you see that Linfield has, I forget the exact number, something like 35 percent first gen students, I think having Miles's point of view has been really important and has influenced how Linfield continues to shift and change um, to serve the students. His Students are first to him, and that's pretty clear every time you talk to him. He doesn't forget. It's a great day to be a Wildcat, Miles, I know. Um, every day is a great day to be a Wildcat. And so that energy is contagious, and I have always thought that about the board. I think the board meetings are run really professionally and also have a hint of inspiration around them. When Dave Hogberg was the chair, he and Dr. Helley always had amazing things to do and say at a board meeting. And now with Dave Baca as the chair, and with Miles Dr. Davis as the president, it's a different energy, but still, um, in that same way, so I always appreciate. I've learned a lot from to, of how to run a big board um, through participating um, at Linfield, and you know this new change and this new phase with being Linfield University, with having graduate degrees coming, with the new expansion of the Portland campus. It's an exciting time. I mean, looking forward, growing through COVID, even in spite in, of COVID. Um, Not a lot lot of other places are experiencing that, Mm -hmm. and so how we continue to capitalize on that, I think there's a a lot of great people working um, in the Linfield community, whether that's on the administrative side or on the faculty side to um, make this come together. Projects like this that you all are doing with the archive project. It's just, it continues to amaze me, everything that is connected to Linfield. Mm and and what Linfield provides, so.
1: You mentioned early on that one of your formative experiences coming up was was when you were offered a new job and suddenly you're more valuable to your own company than you had been before. And you talked about kind of your own value and your own worth and understanding that and fighting for that. Uh, Tell me how that's gone for you as a a woman in the industry, as a woman who's a CEO, has it been more difficult? How has the the steps kind of been for you to get to the role you're at, at now?
2: So I haven't felt that kind of pressure being a female in this company at all. Um, A to Z is 55% uh, women and A to Z also has, I think it's 52% of our management is women. So it's pretty balanced at A to Z and it feels that way and I've never felt that ever at A to Z. I felt that early on in my career at the other two um, big companies that I worked for. Um, but never at A to Z. And within the Oregon wine industry, I don't feel that either. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, do you want to be introduced as the female CEO? I probably don't. I probably just want to be introduced as the CEO. And so that's something that's important to me, but I haven't had to um, really fight that within my own company ever, which is I'm very grateful for. Within the Oregon industry, it doesn't feel weird to me either. I mean, there's a lot of other female leaders Whether it's Alison Soka or Gretchen Bach at Wine by Joe, I mean, I have a lot of contemporaries that are female. A lot of great leaders that, I mean, Morgan at Willamette Valley Wineries. I mean, there's you could just keep going, and there's lots of women and lots of men that have been successful. So, I think where you feel it the most, from based on our size, is out in the world of distribution. Um, Spirits and wine and beer distribution is definitely a male-dominated. Place Mm -hmm. it's how it kind of grew up. Um, There's a lot of legacy in those companies. A lot of whether it's a small distributor or large. Um, I mean, I you get in a room and I mean, I have all all sorts of ways to kind of disarm that of like, hey, let's sit, boy, girl, boy, girl, and guess what? I'm (laughs) the only female that's in that meeting. There's a lot of literal suits. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is where I feel it, and you're also you're in the alcohol business, and so. You know when you're traveling and you're out and there's lots of dinners and it's entertainment you do need to keep that in mind and i I learned that kind of very quickly that you know you are at a business dinner and you have to be mindful of that there's there's alcohol involved and then you're usually one of the only females um, that are participating so you just have to be aware of that i've never run into any issues um thankfully but it's very male dominated um it's changing but it's slow, mm-hmm. um, especially at the leadership level um, of a lot of these companies. So there's a lot of amazing women within the wine business, um, but most of them are kind of in middle, middle management at this point, so I'd like to see that happen faster. That's one of the reasons why I've been trying to participate in anything that comes up, like the Women in Wine group that got started. Allison Blaster was interest, instrumental in starting that up a few years ago we ended up with a great conference in 2019 then we did a virtual one in 2020 just but just supporting anyone that's interested in creating balance and diversity that um, within the industry i know there's a specific winemaking group that has worked on that where they they had a big gathering of all the women that work in winemaking um, a couple of, I think it was about two years ago at Penn or Ash, and they had everybody line up by vintage when their first vintage was, and you had basically 80% of the group was like somewhere between two and I don't remember seven vintages, and then you had very few folks like Cheryl, one of my mm-hmm. um, colleagues, Cheryl Francis, who has 20-some years of vintage experience, and you didn't have very many on that side. So we need we need some of that experience and some of that. Um, the promotion of women to happen faster. Mm -hmm. So I've been a part of this group called Women on Boards. For a long time, their goal was to have 20% of every board be female, and now they're saying 50-50, that's the new goal. Everything should be balanced, why not? Mm -hmm. And so I I believe in those kinds of initiatives. And again, measure what matters. If you don't have targets and goals to shoot for, it's hard to see progress, and it's hard to um, make sure people are pushing for change. Mm
1: So along the way, what's, what's the best piece or one good piece of advice you've gotten uh, in, uh, on your way to, to this role?
2: Probably the best piece of advice is from my mom, so most people call her Dr. Pro. She's pretty serious, if you don't know her behind the scenes, she's pretty stoic. And her advice is just put on your power earrings and show up. You just have to be there. You have to be consistent. Um, Part of the reason, like especially during COVID, that I'm working at the winery part-time is that I think you just have to be visible. Um, I know some people can't and have, I mean, everybody has their own piece of the puzzle during COVID, but I have tried to be here to just be an example. Um, you have to have your, your butt in the chair, right? Like you can't be showing up late and leaving early every day and having everyone think that you're, you know, they don't know what the rest of your schedule is, but you have to be consistent and you have to be here. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of all of us, right, is that you just have to fake it a little bit and get over the nerves, and then it starts to work itself out. Um, you don't have to know 100% of everything on the job post to apply for the job. Um, you need to know some of it and most of it, and you need to be able to learn the rest. and so that that advice from my mom, kind of as a joke early on, has always just stuck with me because you can kind of you can kind of you can just show up and be present, and that confidence, um, you you can show your confidence in other ways mm-hmm. when it's when it's time. so. Mm-hmm. That's my best piece of advice where, you know, and earrings can be anything, right? I mean, that to me, it might be literal earrings, but to someone else, it might be a bow tie or to someone else, it might be shoes, you know. Um, one of our, my colleagues loves to wear different scarves. I mean, it's whatever gives you some sort of outward confidence to show up.
1: That's good advice. I like that.
2: Now you have masks. I have like a hundred masks. <laughs> Which mask should I wear
1: yeah, each yeah, day? Yeah, yeah. mask represents how I'm feeling today. Yeah, yeah there exactly. you go. Speaking of that, let's talk about COVID. You mentioned you brought it up a couple of times. Um, tell me about how COVID has affected your business life and, 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 the, and obviously the 2020 vintage. Uh, other, there were other things to affect that as well. And sort of what you see as we come out of it. What, what are the, some of the changes you've had to make that maybe will stick around? Or what are the things you're looking forward to sort of getting back to doing?
2: COVID, oh boy, that's a big topic. <laughs> so how, COVID has affected our business in a million ways, just like everyone. Um, in the beginning, I think the biggest thing was just the unknown, right? The fear and the, what should we do? So we closed the manufacturing side of our business for about three weeks. And we you know, obviously sent everybody home and kept paying everybody. And we said, well, let's see let's see what happens and so we started doing daily calls just to have discussions to understand you know how we were going to move this forward so we did some things early on like restructuring our bottling line pulling some things out of the truck hanging all the plexiglass i mean we just basically started to make some physical moderations um, where we could continue because we knew one thing we had to do We could take a few weeks of a pause but at some point we had to resume bottling in order to have enough room for the 2020 vintage. So that was one of the first things on our mind and that's what we started to make physical preparations for how can we do that safely. So we started that and were able to get back to bottling at some point in April. And then we started thinking about harvest, right? So you you kind of figure out the day-to-day life of how you're gonna operate the facility. A lot Reduced a lot of the people that needed to come on site. So all of our administrative team working at home. Our direct sales group at the time started working at home because we weren't physically open. Eventually moved to curbside pickup and courier and all the things that folks are doing. Um, and within the cellar we had the advantage of we mostly have um, buildings that can have the outdoors come in so lots of roll-up doors and free airflow people can be spaced out most jobs can be accomplished um, with one person if it needs to be a team of two pretty much everything can be done at a distance Mm -hmm. um, within the cellar so we were able to kind of modify all the sops and understand how that would happen quickly started to thinking about harvest um, we typically have around 10 international interns that come for harvest and about 20 local or domestic interns realized that wasn't going to happen, and that's usually where a lot of our experience comes from at harvest um, from the interns are, is on the international side. So we knew we, de- we could be possibly dealing with a less experienced crew and maybe you know maybe a reduction in, in how many folks we could find, we didn't know. So and started thinking about what are all the jobs at Harvest because more things happen at Harvest that are closer, or in closer contact like the sorting table. Mm-hmm. So we just started picking them off. I mean, Michael Davies and his crew just were like meeting every week. And I mean, how many Zoom calls can we all have? It's just, you know, there's a million of them. And so we just started making modifications, thinking about all the jobs, thinking about how we could do it. So we had a little bit of, I was was fortunate we had some time to plan versus say in New Zealand where they were in the middle of harvest and had to adjust on the fly. So we had time to plan. Um, We have an amazing director of HR, Michelle Candelaria, that really put together all sorts of ways and documents and things to help us tools and we did a great three-day training at the beginning of harvest and all these round robin um, uh, days and sessions and small groups and we kept everyone safe and separate and all the things and we started harvest and we had about 20 percent of the fruit in and then the wildfire started so we had other things to think about on top of covid working in a mask and a respirator that was that was a challenge Communica- you start to learn how to communicate in a mask because you're using your eyes more. You can, I mean, you can see. I'm using my hands today. I've definitely gotten way more expressive um, because you're doing all of these activities in a mask where you're, you know, you're having performance discussions with someone. You're hiring people. You're onboarding. You're outside when a truck's pulling up. I mean, you really learn how to communicate. Then all of a sudden, we had a respirator on. That was pretty tough. Um, so that that was interesting so maybe we'll get to the wildfires in a minute but i think the covid side of things at the manufacturing you know the winery side of things is so different from what's happening with folks that are working from home or our sales team that was used to being remote but they've been grounded they're used to flying all around having all this in all of their life they've sold wine in person (laughs) And now, all of a sudden, you're not doing that. And so reinventing how that happened, a lot of retailers said, no more new items, no, we're not taking any meetings, we're not doing any resets in any of the stores, which was totally understandable. Over time, they figured out how to do that safely. And actually, some of those meetings are more productive. I mean, when you present to Target, you would go, you'd have a five-minute slot, you'd be like in the hall, it's like a casting call, you're like in the hallway, with all the other distributors and suppliers, and you have five minutes to present your wines to Target. Well now, it's on Zoom. You can show your PowerPoint. You have a specific time. You didn't have to leave your house. It's the same, really the same information that you're conveying, and then can you convert the relationship? Mm-hmm. So the challenge is slightly different, but the process is actually a little better um, in some of those cases. So, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see what we leave behind from 2020 mm. and what we What we keep and what we maintain, and do we have to travel so much? Do we have to have four people at the meeting in Florida, or can we do it on a hybrid situation with electronic media? I mean, there will be interesting new patterns. You know, I've really been talking a lot with the sales team in these last couple weeks because their annual reviews are all um, on Zoom this month with their distributors, but maybe by the summer, I mean, who knows? Will we be able to travel or not? and if you are should we mm-hmm. it, it's really a question and like what is that pattern and how should things change mm-hmm. i think it's really important to evaluate before you just go back to what you always used to do
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so you know i think we've all tried to take a little bit of that personal stock of what's important to us and what do we want to get back to and what do we don't what don't we want to mm-hmm. get back to mm-hmm. so you know because so much of our a to z wine is placed in retail um, there was a good demand for that. We did way more business on Instacart than we ever had. <laughs> and so you know, testing and, and trying new modes of delivery have been interesting. We shifted a lot of our advertising to podcast and um, the NPR and BBC broadcasting. So we were really trying to put our message where people were, which was listening. A lot of us, I think more of us listen to radio or streaming. Um, than ever before. So you know, just shifting different ways and different channels um, of that. Rex Hill was a difficult year from a sales point of view because primarily that's eighty percent on premise. And so with that shift, that has been difficult and not being able to host our club members. And in the summer, as we know, everybody visits Oregon. so all your distributors and salespeople would come to visit. We missed out on and getting to see. Um, all of our friends from around around the country and around the world that usually come in the summer so mm-hmm. we happen to be doing a remodel on our tasting room this year um, by chance so um, it was an interesting time we were going to be closed for part of it anyway and then we ended up being closed for the whole year um, with the remodel so we did do some tasting this summer here out of one of the wine buildings um, and in our gardens but not to any large capacity obviously so it'll be. Interesting to see how 2021 opens back up with both the new tasting room open and with hopefully vaccinations continuing to roll out. So that's how COVID has shifted us and I hope that we learn um, from it and Mm -hmm. and take some of the good lessons ahead.
1: Mm -hmm. You Mentioned the fires as well, the other big thing from 2020 for the wine industry. So tell me about how that affected you guys. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think similar to the start of COVID, it felt scary and weird and fearful those first couple of days, and we were just trying to get by um, of figuring it out. Luckily, we do fit all of our cellar crew for respirators for some of the work they do in the cellar, so we were able to transition to that pretty quickly. We halted picking for a few days, of course, as we were trying to figure out the best situation. What we ended up doing is meeting with each of our growers individually on the phone and seeing what was best for them. We were trying to understand proximity, and length of duration of where they were in terms of whatever fires they were in, because we buy from all over the state, so we were taking into account what was happening in the gorge all the way down to Ashland, so we have growers throughout. And really trying to understand, did they have insurance, did they not? Um, we worked with each grower. We did not refuse any fruit and we just decided we'll take the risk and we'll see what we can do. Um, our yields were already going to be down about 15 percent because of the, how the um, year was going. Beautiful vintage, beautiful fruit, but the yields were down. And then, with on top of what we lost, either through just um, um, what had happened in each of the vineyards due to the fires, because basically, as Joey, our Joey Myers says, our viticulturalist, he said basically the lights were shut off for two weeks. So the grapes were in the dark for two weeks, so it stopped ripening and all the great things that are happening usually at that time of the year with the sugars. So when we did make decisions to start picking, um, our yields were down total about 32%. The only advantage of that is that then we had enough space to keep everything separate within the winery. So since we were set up for about 4,500 tons to come through the door, when we only had 3,100 tons, which still sounds like a lot of fruit, um, we were able to keep it all in separate lots mm-hmm. so that we could treat everything separately if it needed it. Mm-hmm. And because the vintage was was such a full and ripe vintage, our winemaking team has said that there was enough to work with there. So with the whites, you could press really lightly. With the reds, you had enough structure there that if later you do have to filter. Then you have enough wine too. So we're pretty pleased with how the 2020 is going. A um, little bit early to tell on the reds because everything's still going through ML, um, and there's less to work with. So we're just trying to see how that goes. We will start bottling at the end of January our rosé and um, which is a Sangiovese base, and our Riesling, and we'll just kind of watch, you know, watch it through. Another advantage of our size is that we're not always exactly selling the vintage we just made. So we're currently just starting to offer the 2018 A-Z Pinot Noir. So this reduced quantity of 2020 won't come for another 18 months or so into our sales cycle. So you have the opportunity to, say, augment the 21 vintage with quantity to keep your cycle rolling. So you never guess correctly, of course. Um, You're always about three years ahead on your sourcing plan to what you want to be selling. So, you know, if you're trying to grow, as we continue to try to do, then you're buying ahead. So it's this whole Mm -hmm. 3D chess on a spreadsheet of trying to figure out, you know, your sourcing plan three, five, ten years out based on your sales. And, of course, the demand keeps changing on your sales, positive and negatively, so you're always trying to get the quantity correct in the out years. So we have a little bit of play, I guess is my point, Mm -hmm. with what we have available to sell. So we shouldn't see real disruption in our um, availability this year out in the market. But again, I think I said this earlier, our number one goal is to always make quality wine. So we won't make something if it's not up to our standards. Mm
1: So, tell me about the the changes you've seen in the in the industry from your first kind of first impressions uh, to now. Uh, you mentioned one thing you mentioned earlier was more business people, more more business mindset. What are some of the other what what effects has that had on the industry, and what are some of the other changes you've seen from in in the industry from then to now?
2: One of the things that comes to mind is just that emphasis, say with the Oregon Wine Symposium. Right now there's a track for wine and viticulture and there's a track for business and marketing. I mean things like that start to define what types of leaders we produce that either come into the wine business from a different industry or grow up within the industry and continue to gain experience. So I think things like that start to show. Um, having having other relationships and providers that now are based in Oregon, whether it's suppliers or Um, providers of packaging or things that you need for the seller Um, trying to think where else that might show it's a good question the symposium comes to mind I mean other offshoots of that like women in wine I mean anything that's focused on either the culture or the industry in general, rather than just about making wine, mm-hmm. you still need those groups and you still need great winemakers. That's that's the foundation of every winery for sure. But when there's other groups that you can join that aren't just about making wine, mm-hmm. I think that's has the how the industry is growing up. You know that we have lots of little towns now throughout. Um, I mean, mostly where I'm Visiting is within the Willamette Valley, but that's happening in Southern Oregon too. I mean, look at Jacksonville or Ashland. When you have these different communities that are based around wine, dining experiences, I mean, those all start to grow into um, places of interest, and then where people are traveling. So that's one of the things that concerns me about Oregon in general, and especially Portland. Um, you know, what happens with you know the food scene being shut down, and how do we? How do we get those travelers back that most, they're coming to, to Portland to understand and, and see the food scene, mm-hmm. and then lots of them come to wine country too. So what will that mean for the rebuild of some of our bigger cities mm-hmm. and getting travelers to come that then come to wine, and wine country? Um, that's concerning
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, for sure of how we get back, mm-hmm. get back that travel agency. So maybe one other thing I can think of is that more wineries and folks that work at wineries are being asked to be a part of different kinds of organizations. So whether that's, it reminded me when thinking about traveling, I mean whether that's um, Maria Ponzi being on the Travel Portland Board or that's my colleague Sam being chair of the OBI Board. Um, You know, having people being involved in non-wine specific Mm -hmm. organizations that support the wine industry, I think that starts to show that we're growing up and that we're, we have folks that are broader um, in their thinking and how they can add that to the state, whether it's the growth of the state, the economic viability of the state, you know, how we do treat wildfires and what should we do about forest management. Um, what we do about legislation for immigration and um, I mean all those kinds of topics are important to the wine business, but it's about the bigger picture of Oregon mm-hmm. and the world. So I think maybe, maybe that's more where we see um, a shift and a change that shows us that we um, are growing up as an industry.
1: Mm-hmm. What about as you look ahead for Oregon? What is, what is, what's next for Oregon wine? What is it going to look like mm-hmm. in the next decade?
2: If I knew that answer, Rich, I think I might be, I might have a winning lottery ticket or something. You know, I mean, my answer a year ago, well, uh, my answer 18 months ago would have been so different than what it is today. Um, As we were talking about not understanding how the food scene will come back in Oregon, it's hard to know how, how that will be. It's hard to know who out there is, how much each person is struggling. I think every business has been through something during this time. So how hard how hard were they hit? It's hard to know. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, this summer I think will help tell the trend um, how quickly the state can get the vaccine rolled out. I think will help us know how quickly we can get back. I mean, what will happen more out in the broader world with Oregon wine? To me, I, I keep seeing more of the same. I don't see how that is changing anytime soon. I mean, Oregon's reputation is so positive. Um, I'm hoping 2021, um, is nicer to us for the vintage, but you also can't control that either. I mean, that's part of the reason so many people got into the business is that it is farming. So you never know um, what will happen. But, um, you know, I still see um, lots of people interested, whether it's consumers or distributors in Oregon. And if any, maybe the best test is how well direct sales have gone for so many Oregon wineries during this time. I mean, people not only in Oregon but outside supporting local and supporting small wineries. I mean, there was a lot of direct sales mm-hmm. that happened out there. So that's maybe that's what the indicator is to us—that people still want delicious wine with their food. So as long as Oregon keeps that up, I, th- I think we have we have a really bright future. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. What about the future here at Rex Hill? What are in A to Z? What is what is up next for you?
2: Mm-hmm. So our future here at A to Z is to try to keep doing more of the same. Um, We try to stay in our lane. I mean, we we've made the same types of wine, and we make one cuvee of each wine each year. I mean, we we really have been trying to be consistent. We will continue to allow the market to tell us what size we should be. So if we keep growing, then we'll keep growing to keep up with that growth. If at some point we plateau, then we'll plateau. So we'll we'll try to make sure that. that the mark we stay in tune with what the market is telling us. It's harder and harder to keep that price at twenty dollars and under, with all of the increasing costs and and things that have you know kind of affected us over the last several years and have affected growers more specifically. Um, you know, one of A to Z's strategies early on was to not own very much property. We only have two properties that we own that go to the Rex Hill brand. So. You know, growers are in a really tough position with having really low yields for 2019 and 2020, and we've tried to do our part to partner with each of them. But um, it's going to be it's going to be hard to not have increases on grape prices over the next few years. So, how do we absorb those? What do we do to try to continue to gain efficiencies um, here in the winery? And and how does that work into our national pricing? Mm-hmm. So, I think that's something that we'll have to continue to really analyze and use that cost accounting degree um, to understand. I mean it's it's important stuff to understand the the structure of the business. So, you know, part of part of what's on my shoulders a lot is just, you know, we have 74 or 75 employees. I mean they're depending on us. And we have to keep our sights on that future Mm -hmm. and staying stable. So that's our that's our plan. Consistency, quality wine Mm -hmm. at a sustainable value. Mm we're gonna keep it up
1: what about for you personally what do you see for yourself as you look ahead
2: it's an interesting time i don't know (laughs) you're asking me hard questions right um i think my personal goals over the next couple of years are to continue to see how a to z and my leadership role here can continue to intersect in the community that's somewhere where i really find a lot of fulfillment and that's also somewhere where I think I can be valuable in both places. And um, you know, how uh, how else can I be helpful out there in the world? Um, I'll be 50 in two years, so it's kind of that marker out there of like, what is your legacy and what are you contributing? So I've had a lot of that thinking, but I'm I'm pretty. Um, I hope to travel again one day, that would be fun, (laughs) Um, but I'm pretty grateful for the place that I'm in and it feels really comfortable, but yet there's so many challenges, so it's not easy by any means, Um, so I'm going to continue to stay grateful and look forward to some good trips.
1: Excellent. With all the questions that I have, I'm done done asking you horribly hard questions (laughs) here. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered?
2: It feels like we kind of hit a lot of the... The high points. I gave you a few little funny stories about the cat. I don't know. I was trying to come up with a few.
1: Well, Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And of course, your service to the industry and to Linfield is is very much appreciated. Yeah. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.